Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be here with you this morning. I had the uh, honor and privilege yesterday of attending my brother's wedding and uh, my younger brother. They grew up so fast. But I am even more excited to stand before you and bring you the Word of God. And uh, as Dave was reading that, the entire chapter of Philippians 3, I was bemoaning the fact that I don't have 10 hours. I know you won't bemoan that, but there's just so much here um, in the Word of God, and we are just so privileged to be able to do this. So I just want to pray God's blessing on His Word. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for this day, for this time that we can set aside to worship You, to draw closer to You through Your Word. Lord, I pray that you would convict each person of what they need to hear today. Father, some of their sins. Father, some of their, um, of their self-reliance. Um, others, Father, I pray that you would comfort um, those who are feeling the strain and stress of their sin, that you, would, that you would encourage them to put their faith in Christ. We pray that your word would be powerful and that it would cause us to draw closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My text today is from Philippians 3. And before I before we start getting into the scripture, um, I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of context on the book of Philippians. And when I first started reading scriptures seriously at around the age of 18, what first impressed me and most impressed me about the Apostle Paul was the depth of his knowledge, his insight into doctrine. Now that, I've, that I am maturing in my faith and I'm ministering more, what strikes me most is Paul's love, the depth of his love for the gospel and for people. And what I mean is that Paul's rich and deep theology was not something he held to satisfy some philosophical questions he had, or that he needed answers for, he, Paul understands that there's a direct correlation between what we believe about God and how we live our lives. So Paul's own love for his fellow Christians is rooted in his understanding of God's love for him. And how he understood that love brought out love in his own heart. So you can't read Paul's epistles to the church without seeing that foundation of love. And if you miss that foundation of love, you're going to get all kinds of imbalanced ideas. So it was love for Christ and for his fellow men that motivated Paul to suffer the beatings and persecutions that he did. It was love that motivated him to continually pour himself out for the churches that he planted. And it was love that motivated him to strenuously fight for and defend the faith against those who were attacking the churches, tempting them to stray and to apostatize. So we see Paul doing many things in his letters, teaching, exhorting, commanding, um, rebuking, praising, but all of these things flow out of his love for Christ and his church. So our passage today is the third chapter of Paul's epistle. And it's a passage that begins with stern warning and rebukes and ends with encouragement and exhortation. So as we walk through the passage, what we're going to do is we'll we'll looking at three elements at play here. First, we'll see legalism, then we'll see Christ, 
and finally we'll see citizenship. So if you're taking notes, those are kind of the three main headings that we'll be working with. So the first, the first, the first element in verses one through six, um, legalism. And the reason I started talking about Paul's love and how that is the foundation is because in verse two we see something Paul doing something that looks very unloving. He calls people names. If you are, uh, one of the first lessons that your mother teaches you is do not call other people names. But what we see Paul here, he calls, he says, watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, they might not seem that bad to your ears at first here, but again, Paul's not writing to you. He's writing to people in a certain context and a culture. And in that context and in that culture and to the people that he was writing to, these were about the worst things he could possibly say. So who were these things? Who were these people that Paul was talking about? They're, they're the people that we would now call Judaizers. As you might guess from their name, the Judaizers were people who were attempting to take Christianity and, and make it a Jewish religion. They were, they were saying that the, the requirements of Judaism were also requirements for Christians. And the chief point of controversy between the Judaizers and Paul was whether or not the Gentile believers had to be circumcised. So and Paul was dealing with these people in almost every church that he had planted, every church that he was going to, every church that he wrote to. And unfortunately, while we can't get into an in-depth examination of what they taught, we need to understand a few basic things. And the most important thing you need to realize about these Judaizers is they were not coming into the churches and saying, Jesus Christ, that, that's a lie. Um, we all want you to come follow us and follow after Zeus. They were coming into these churches full of, Judy, of Gentiles who had little to no familiarity with the Old Testament, and they're saying, yes, Jesus is our Messiah, and we're your brothers. But uh, there's, there's some stuff that you haven't been told yet. There's, there's more to this story. There's more to this picture. And then they would go to the law, and they would say, the, there are these external standards, there are these external markers that God has set up that we need to follow in order to be considered true Christians. And so what they were doing was imposing external standards and good works as a requirement of being a true child of God. They were saying that righteousness depended on these external marks. And so with that little bit of background, we can understand the very pointed insults that Paul delivers here. He calls them dogs, and this is significant because the, these Judaizers refer to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised Gentiles, as dogs. And yet Paul says, no, you're the dogs. We are the true circumcision. He calls them, he calls them evildoers. That might not seem as much of an insult, but you have to understand, these people were coming in and saying, we have high standards. They were coming in and saying, hey, let's party. Let's have, um, let's have beer in the church. We're going to you know, call in the DJ, and we're going to um, carouse and party. They were saying, we have to have even higher standards. They were calling people to a, what they called a higher standard. And yet Paul is saying to them, no, in what you are doing, you are evil. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. 
And there is even more that meets the eye with this accusation as well. He's echoing the language of Leviticus 19, verse 28, which forbids the mutilation of the flesh, which was a common thing that the pagans did. And God had commanded people not to mutilate themselves as the pagans did in order to separate themselves. So what you have is you have these Judaizers coming in and saying, we need to follow after the commandments of God. And what Paul is saying is, look, by imposing these standards, you are just like the pagans. Not only is your not only are your actions not gaining you anything, they are making you just like the Canaan pagans. So Paul is very, very good at sarcasm, and he's very good at insulting people. You actually see it with Jesus, too, but don't take this as license to start calling people dogs. Um, I mean, the Westboro Baptist Church is also good at insulting people. Um, so before you engage in this type of verbal warfare, understand that Paul and Jesus talked like this because they had a love for people and the truth. They didn't talk like this because it was their pleasure to destroy people with their quick wits and their sharp tongues. So I'm not saying there's never a time for us to speak like Paul, but I think that 99% of the time that we're tempted to is probably out of sinful motives. So just be careful. So what we've determined so far is that Paul really, really detests, or I I hesitate to say it, but I, I think that it, his, he hates this legalism. Now, why? Why does Paul have such a strong reaction to these people? Well, if you, we keep reading, he tells us why. Look at verse 6. Paul says, um, regarding, the, regarding the law, he was a Pharisee or regarding zeal, he is persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. This doesn't mean the true, he's not speaking of the true law, the law of love that God has, but he's talking about the external standards that had been set up by the Jews. He's not saying he'd never sinned in the eyes of God. He calls himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy. But according to the external standards of righteousness that had been set up by the religious establishment of his day, he was blameless. No one could come up to him and say, Paul, you've walked too many steps on the Sabbath today. Or, Paul, you forgot to make the appropriate sacrifice on the appropriate day. If there was a rule, Paul had kept it. And in fact, reading this reminds me of the author of Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes says, I've explored every avenue, every possible avenue that a human could explore to find satisfaction, and I found each one lacking. I tried finding satisfaction in money, in sex, in philosophy, in wisdom, and also in blissful ignorance and drunkenness er, and wine. And in the end, I found that nothing apart from God can bring satisfaction. In the same way, Paul says, if anyone succeeded in achieving righteousness by the law through sheer effort, it was me. I followed the path that these men are telling you to go down, and they're telling you to follow this path of, of uh, righteousness by the law, and in the end, it was all for nothing. So both the author of Ecclesiastes and Paul are examples of someone who pursued something other than God to the nth degree and found that it was empty in the end. So, blameless according to the law, 
Paul had achieved through sheer will a perfect attainment of the external indicators. So Paul understands where these people are coming from. He, underst he understands the mindset of the legalist who, who likes to set up standards. So why does he, why does he despise them so much? Why, why does he have such a strong reaction to them? Well, he tells us in verse 7, he says, Everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. The reason Paul has such a strong reaction against this is because he had found something that was not even worth comparing to the previous righteousness. He had found something so far superior that he now viewed everything he had once held dear as a loss. Everything he had once viewed as an asset, he now viewed as a liability. We often think of assets and liabilities in terms of money. Assets are things that are worth money, and liabilities are things that cost us money. So an asset is a plus, and a liability is a minus. But assets and liabilities come in other forms as well, and their status as an asset or a liability changes depending on what we're trying to do. There's some silly examples, but if you're trying to join a gang, a tattoo on your forehead would be an asset. But if you're trying to be a police officer, then it is a liability. If you're trying to mow lawns, a ride-on mower is an asset. If you're trying to win the Indy 500, it's a liability. If you want to be a basketball player, being tall is a liability. If you want to be a jockey in the Kentucky Derby, it is a liability. So if you are trying to achieve a righteousness through the law, the list, the list that Paul gave us, that was an asset. If you're trying to... <clears throat> excuse me. If you're trying to be found in the righteousness of Christ, then all those things that would encourage you to put confidence in your own flesh turn out to be a liability. So what changed for Paul here is not that he didn't become a Jew of the Jews anymore. It is that his direction changed. That now instead of trying to pursue righteousness through the law, he was pursuing a righteousness in Christ. So the problem with legalism is not that it sets a standard that is too high or that is too difficult to keep. The problem with legalism is that it sets a standard of righteousness that is achievable by human will and keeps the Christian focused on maintaining that righteousness rather than recognizing that faith in Christ is the only way to have a true righteous stand before God. Stated in another way, the problem with legalism is not that it sets the standard too high, it sets it too low. One of the biggest problems with legalism is that it defines a standard of righteousness that is low enough that we can be enticed into thinking we can keep it on our own strength. Legalism is not having a lot of rules. There are legalists with a ton of rules, but there are also legalists who have very few rules, even just one or two rules. The defining mark of a legalist is not someone who has a lot of rules. It's what they believe their rules accomplish and what maintaining their rules accomplishes. 
If you think that the way to combat legalism is by having no rules or no obligations, you're going to have a very hard time understanding scriptures like Romans 6 or the epistles of James and John, which speak very, very explicitly that we as Christians do have obligations to love, obligations to serve, and obligations to pursue holiness. So Paul isn't angry at these false teachers because they're setting rules that are too hard to keep. If you look at Paul's life, he was all about doing the hard things, about doing the difficult things. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And Paul wanted us to mark him out and people like him and follow their example. So throughout, the, throughout his epistles, Paul calls Christians to a radically sacrificial lifestyle of love and service. So Paul's anger at legalism has nothing to do with his desire to be able to see Christians be able to take it easy and coast through life. He's not angry with the legalists because they're somehow more spiritual than him. He's angry with the legalists because in teaching what they teach, they denigrate the righteousness of God by supposing it can be reduced to a few rules. He's angry with them because they are causing Christians to worry about attaining a self-righteousness instead of living confidently in a far superior righteousness that has been deposited in their account by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He's angry with them because by teaching that righteousness comes through our own works, they are robbing people of the vastly satisfying experience of knowing Jesus Christ. So now it's to this idea of knowing Christ that we turn. The, f the first element in the passage that we, are, that we were looking at was legalism, and now in verses 7 through 11, we'll be looking at Christ. Paul says, Everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. So, in this passage, we see that Paul considers 
Jesus Christ to be both the means of the gospel as well as the end of the gospel. Now, means, um, I know sometimes I remember, I heard when I was younger, I heard this means and ends um, phraseology all the time. And uh, so sometimes I know us adults use these terms. So I just want to explain, maybe just for the kids, what we mean when we say means and ends. Means is what you use or what you do, and the end is why you do it. So, for instance, when I traveled here, the means that I used was flying in an airplane. But the end, the reason that I came here, was to go to my brother's wedding and to bring the word of God to you this morning. So, usually the end and the means aren't the same thing. So, if you ask me, how did you get here, I would say, I flew, and that is the means. But if you ask me why I got here, I wouldn't say, so I could fly. You usually don't use the same thing for the same to to accomplish and get to the same thing. So, But for Paul, Christ is both the ends and the means. So let's look at this in greater detail because understanding this will be helpful to us when we are reading Paul. So let's first look at what it means for Christ to be the means of the gospel. We see Paul referencing this in verse 9. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. <clears throat> Once again, we see Paul contrasting his pursuit with those of the legalist. They're pursuing a righteousness based on their own laws. He's pursuing a righteousness that comes directly from God. Now, if you don't understand the Christian view of the world, this, this makes no sense. And what I mean by this is, uh, for instance, in a purely atheistic or naturalistic or even a Buddhist view of the world, the universe just is. There's nothing right or wrong. The universe just is. So death and entropy and the decay, they're not wrong. They're just features of the universe. So in this, in this view, any talk of, any talk of the universe uh, as broken or any talk of setting the universe right again, it doesn't make any sense. But the Bible, on the other hand, teaches that we live in a fundamentally broken and flawed world. Not only is the world broken, but we're the ones who are responsible for it. And not only, are we, not only is the world broken and we're responsible for it, we as human beings are also broken. And the Bible also goes further and explains that not only is the entire human race culpable, but that each of us, each one of us sitting here in this room, each person as an individual is also a sinner. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And that's in Romans 3, verse 10 through 18. So that's what the Bible says about us as creatures. And what the Bible says about God paints an even dire, more dire picture for us. In Psalm 7, it says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So God is a righteous God. That means he actually hands out the justice that is due. A corrupt judge is one who lets people off. A righteous judge is one that ensures justice is done. And God's character absolutely means that justice must come to us. Our sin disgusts God. And the fact that we don't recognize that doesn't change anything. A criminal going into the courtroom, his opinion of himself doesn't matter one bit to the judge. What matters is the judge's opinion of the criminal. And the judge in our case demands perfect righteousness. Not 99% righteousness and 1% imperfection, but perfect, total, and complete obedience. Oftentimes, and oftentimes we think of the, the chasm between us and God in terms of those willful sins that we've committed the outright rebellions, the breaking of the Ten Commandments. And those, those things do separate us from God. But true righteousness not only consists in not breaking the rules, it includes those positive actions that can't simply be defined by following some sort of rule. And that's the greatest commandment of all is to love God. So true righteousness does not merely consist of doing or not doing certain things like the legalists believe. True righteousness is thinking and acting like God. True righteousness is hating what God hates and loving what he loves and acting on that knowledge. So not only do we have a debt to pay in regards to the sins that we have committed, we also have a deficit in our righteousness. And God is so holy, so just, so righteous that he cannot just forgive us. He can't just let us off. He can't just sweep our sin under the carpet. So that's a big problem for us because we can be assured that justice will be done. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So this is the context in which the gospel is good news. And the good news of the gospel is twofold. First, the second person of the Godhead became a man in order to die for all that would believe in him, in order to satisfy the sentence that was due to us. So everyone here deserves death. There's not an exception here. Every one of us is righteously condemned to a death sentence. Christ died so that that sentence has already been carried out. So for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. But secondly, he also lived a life that was in conformity to the righteous will of his Father. So every thought, every action 
that Jesus Christ ever did was done from perfectly pure and loving motives. And this positive righteousness that Jesus Christ demonstrated, that also has been transferred to us. It's been imputed to us. So Christ took away our sins, put them on himself, and paid the penalty for them, but he also gave us his perfect righteousness, the, the perfect righteousness of God himself. That's what it says in verse 9. It says, it is the righteousness from God. That is, that is so significant. The righteousness from the law was an insufficient, and I'm speaking now of the Old Testament law that God set up. The righteousness from the law was insufficient righteousness, and that's why it had to be renewed constantly. If you, Hebrews 4, verse 9 through 14, um, if you want to take a moment and turn there with me. It's Hebrews 4, verse 9, we'll be beginning at. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the righteousness that was offered under the old covenant was insufficient and lacking. But now, under the new covenant, when God asks of his people, how righteous are these people? The answer is, these people are as righteous as I am. The righteousness that we have in Christ, through faith in Christ, it is a perfect righteousness that not a thing can be added to it. And this doesn't mean that Christians are as perfect as God. If you know any Christians, you know that's not the case. But what the Bible does teach is that God justifies us. That is, he applies Christ's righteousness to our account at the time we confess our need for a Savior and place our faith in him. So, and at the same time, we also, he starts the process of sanctification, which means that he begins to cause us to resemble Christ. Sanctification doesn't mean that we'll ever be perfect here on this earth, but what it means is that we are running away from sin and running towards God. And so this righteousness that God has imputed to us, there's nothing you can do to earn it. All you have to do is confess that God's standard is a right and just standard and that you that you are a wicked person and that you trust Christ's work 
to do for you what you could not. It's a free gift that comes to every person who believes, every person who claims it. And how do you know if Christ's righteousness can be yours? If you confess that you need it. If you confess that Christ is big enough and good enough to do it for you. Sometimes we complicate things needlessly, but that, that, is, that is all. You, if you believe that, God will forgive you. And we could spend all day looking at this. And I feel the weight of how poor of a job I am doing of magnifying Christ through this. It is perhaps the most shocking truth ever uttered. If you are in Christ, when God views your righteousness, it is as if he is looking in a mirror. That's unbelievable. Do we, have, do we have words to describe the enormity of that fact? Can this truth ever grow old or be topped? Well, actually, as they would say in the infomercials, but wait, there's more. More more than the forgiveness of our sins and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to our account? What could possibly be better than that? Well, remember, we started talking in this section about how Christ is both the means and the end of the gospel. This was just the means being righteous in God's sight is not the point of the gospel. The end, the goal, the point of what God is doing is something else. So let's transition from looking at Christ as the means, the vehicle of the gospel, and look at Jesus Christ as the end, the point, the goal of the gospel. You'll notice in verse 8 that Paul says, he doesn't say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of truly being righteous. He says, he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And let me just say that again because it is crucial. The point of the Christian walk is not to be righteous in the sight of God. The point of the Christian walk is to increase in knowledge and fellowship with Christ. Now, what, what does this, when, when Paul says knowing Christ, what does, this, what does this mean? Paul's not just talking about having an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. You, know, you certainly have to have that. You have to have a certain intellectual understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Um, if you think that Jesus is a Mexican soccer player, putting faith in that person won't do much for you. But Paul stresses the importance of having a proper understanding of who Jesus is on an intellectual basis in other parts of his epistles. But here, though, he's talking about a different sort of knowing. So let's keep um, in, in verse, um, verse 10. <clears throat> Pardon me. He says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Sharing in someone's suffering 
is not mere head knowledge. Paul isn't just talking about being on the sidelines and reading a book about Jesus. He is saying that this knowing of Christ, the knowing of Christ that is infinitely superior to anything else, it is a knowledge that is intimately connected with the mission of Christ, participating with Christ in a very real way. In, in verses 9 through 11, we have a complete but brief description of the Christian life. In verse 9, he says, Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is faith, but one that is through faith in Christ. That's justification. That is God imputing Christ's righteousness to us. In verse 10, we have the process of sanctification. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. I just want to say a quick word on sanctification here. I had a whole long section about this, but I had to take it out for the sake of time, but I can't resist at least mentioning this. God isn't just torturing us by not bringing us to heaven right now. Through this whole crazy experience of life, through all the, through the brokenness, through the learning to depend on God, through the uncertain times and the trials of learning to depend on Christ daily to kill our sin, God is teaching us things about himself, about his character, that we never would have learned otherwise. It's not just an exercise in futility between when we are saved and when we are glorified. God has a purpose in our lives and the hardships that he brings us through that ultimately result in a greater understanding, appreciation, and love of who he is. In verse 11, then, Paul talks about our final glorification, where we will be raised from among the dead, where our bodies will no longer, these fleshly dying bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his own body. These verses about knowing Christ through the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering, it's one of those areas that, that pains me the most to have to move on so quickly. It's, it's just so amazing, but we, we have to keep moving on. But for our purposes, what Paul is telling us is what it looks like to know Christ. He's giving us a picture of what it means to be in Christ and to know him. So when, when Paul talks about um, how knowing Christ is the highest pursuit that a person can pursue, he's showing us in these verses what that knowing looks like. Knowing Christ and sharing in his experience, is, it's a frightening thing. Knowing Christ and becoming like him is not easy. I want you to look at what kind of person Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ was and is a person of radical love and sacrifice. Back up with me to uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had become as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death 
on a cross. Jesus Christ existed the way a God deserves to exist, in a state of such perfection, in a state of such holiness, in a state of such tranquility and bliss that we can't even begin to imagine. Yet he didn't hold tightly onto his right to exist in that way. He humbled himself. And that is perhaps the biggest understatement in the entire Bible, that Christ came from existing as a God, living as a God ought to, and came and humbled himself to live as a man. A man who came to serve and die for those who were in utter rebellion to him. That radical love, that radical service, that dedication to the holiness and glory of God, those are all things that we are not only to understand about Christ, they are all things we are called to know with him and through him. The legalists are worried about attaining or maintaining righteousness. Paul is concerned with being in Christ through the righteousness already attained by Christ. The gospel is ultimately not about having your sins forgiven and going to heaven. If that's all it were about, it would be a glorious truth that we could sing for eternity praising God for. But it is actually about having your sins forgiven so that you can be in a position of both knowing Christ and being in him and becoming like him. And this is where we see another reason that legalism is so deadly to the Christian faith. It mistakes a righteous standing before God as the point of the Christian faith. But if you're a Christian, being a legalist makes absolutely no sense. Our understanding of Christ's righteousness is such, you can't add, it, it is perfect. It's, it's about as absurd as trying to add space to an infinitely large universe. You can't. Your mind can't even wrap around that. It doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. And so a righteous standing before God is not the point of the Christian faith. Christ didn't die just to make you righteous. He died to make you righteous so that you too could understand the surpassing worth of knowing him. So how, how, do, we, how do we come to know Christ? What does this what does this what is it, in practical terms, what does it mean to be pursuing the knowledge of Christ? Well, so far we've seen that Paul is opposed to legalism because it obscures the true pursuit of Christianity, which is to be known and to be found in Jesus Christ. So, which naturally takes us to the question, how do we know Christ? Well, he's not here for us to talk face to face the same way that if we were wondering how to get to, if I were wondering how to get to know any of you, well, I would come down and talk to you, I would have a conversation, I would, we would, we would live life together, and we would get to know each other that way. Well, again, this is a topic for a sermon all by itself, but I want to suggest two things very briefly. The first is that we can encounter Jesus Christ through the pages of Scripture. 
not only in the not only in the gospels that tell us about his incarnation and his life but also the entire old testament and the new testament where jesus himself says that the scriptures point to him he's the author of the entire scriptures so we encounter christ we encounter his character we understand his thoughts by reading scripture so the first way that you can know Christ in this life-changing, soul-satisfying way is to become a student of the Scripture. The second is to learn to serve. In both the life of, Paul, of Jesus and the life of Paul, we see men who pour themselves out in service and in love. When Paul, in, in, in verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already fully mature, but I make every effort to hold, to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. When, when Paul is talking about striving and working, you read the, his epistles, you read the Acts, what is Paul doing when he says he's striving? It is he is suffering for the gospel. He is laying out everything on the line in order to love people, to spread the gospel, and to glorify God. When Paul talks about striving and stretching and pursuing, he's making reference to the hardship he endures, the lifestyle he has given up, the people he has loved, the truth he has strived for, and the gospel that he has preached. I'll, I'll give you one example of how radical service, how pursuing um, love and service is a way that we can both exhibit the love of God, but also know God in this life-changing way. And that is, and again, this is not the only way, but this is a way. And to me, one of the most amazing um, ways that we, can, uh, that we can work with God, that we can understand the love, that we can understand the, that we can understand the suffering of Christ is through Adoption. Adoption is taking a child that is not your own and calling them your own. What was once not yours, pursuing them, taking them into your home, that they are now your child. God has done this for each of us. Each of us was an unlovely, sinful urchin that God has called into his family adopted, and call us a co-son with Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. The picture of adoption is amazing, but it is, it is, in, this, it is in this process of taking, and so there are, there are, adoption and orphans are not as in your face in this country as they might be in other in other countries. We have good medical systems, we have um, government that takes care of it, but one of the main commands, one of the, one of the markers of true religion in the Old Testament was taking care of widows and the fatherless. And 
we just had our first our first son, my wife Rachel and I, and um, we are also planning at some point if the Lord would bless us with the resources to move through this process of adoption. But in reading stories and and thinking through this process, it is such it is such a um, beautiful picture of Christ's love for us. It's not easy. Many of these children who grow up in orphanages or or these orphans who grow up in these institutions have serious physical deformities, serious mental deficiencies, and sometimes very severe um, emotional trauma. The world looks at children like that and says, let's just keep them away out of our sight, and that's what they do. We have seen so, so many beautiful pictures of families that see a cripple, uh, these, these 14, these 12-year-olds, these 10-year-olds who look like three-year-olds because they're so malnourished, so emotionally starving. And these families adopt them into their families, nurture them, and they just grow and blossom. And it is hard. It is hard. It costs sometimes upwards of $40,000 to adopt a child from overseas into your family. It is a huge sacrifice. It is not an easy thing to do. And I'm not saying everyone is called to do this. But it, but for me, and this is I, I do strongly feel this is something God has called me and my wife to, in thinking through this, in seeing what it takes to love someone that is unlovely, it gives me a picture of what a small token of what God did for me, what God has done for you. I would love to see more families adopting. Our church, our church back in, in Louisville and the church back in Kalamazoo are just full of adoptive families, and it is, the, it is amazing. But not, every, not everyone is called to that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to set up a legalistic standard. But whether or not you're called to adopt in that way, if you, want to, if you want to draw closer to Christ, if you want to share in his sufferings, you need to pursue the things that are near and dear to his heart. This constant pursuit, this striving, this doing whatever it takes to draw closer to Christ, where the world strives for the next car, the next award, the next degree, we Christians strive to know our Savior. So if encountering Christ in Scripture and serving the kingdom in radical ways is how we know Christ, what does this radical striving look like in our day-to-day decision-making? 
So Paul talks about training hard so that he is not like a boxer who's just beating at the air. He wants to train. He has this goal of knowing Christ, and so he looks at his daily life and says, how do I accomplish my goal of knowing Christ? He says, it is not something that I have achieved, but it is something that I see as amazing and beautiful, and so I am going to direct all my energies, direct all of my resources to knowing this one amazing truth. How do we practically strive for that? Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher, and not a very good one, and he wrote a book called Beyond Right and Wrong. Now, Nietzsche was a nihilist, and he believed that God didn't exist, so he thought that the categories of right and wrong were meaningless. But we know that Nietzsche was wrong, and that he was insane, and that we do need to be considering the rightness or wrongness of our thoughts, actions, and attitudes. But I like that idea of beyond right and wrong. I like the title of that, because all too often as Christians, we direct our lives around those two categories. And that, ultimately, that thinking only in terms of right and wrong is the mindset of a legalist. See, a legalist asks, is this right and wrong? Can I do this and not get in trouble? But scriptures and our Redeemer calls us to a much higher standard. It calls us not to simply ask, is this right or wrong, but to look at our lives as a whole and say, am I straining for what lies ahead? Am I striving to know Jesus Christ? And when we constantly analyze our lives under the spectrum of simply right and wrong, we're subconsciously operating under a sort of legalistic lens. You see, legalism says, if this thing is wrong, therefore I can't do it, and these things are not wrong, therefore I will, I can do them. You run everything by the filter of right and wrong because the more good stuff that you do that outweighs the bad, God will like you better. But Paul's concern is that we learn to think in terms of striving for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Not, is this right or is this wrong, but am I pursuing Christ with all my might to the extent that I am able to do so? And not because pursuing Christ makes you a better person, but because your true happiness is found in pursuing Christ. Let me give you a, just a completely hypothetical example that I'm sure none of us will ever have to ask. Can a Christian purchase and drive a $500,000 sports car? Well, a legalist might look at that and say, well, of course not. That money should go to charity. If you want to prove how righteous you are, how much you love the poor, you should give that all to charity and just to show how much you love God and how good of a person you are. Well, we know, understanding the righteousness that comes from Christ, that something as silly as a sports car is not going to change one iota how God looks at us. Buying a, buying a Ferrari will not make God think less of you. It will not make him think more of you. So does that mean it is okay for you to buy that Pagani Zonda? Yes, it is unequivocally and absolutely a fine thing 
for a Christian to own and drive an absolutely crazy and useless car that goes from 0 to 60 in 3.2 seconds. You can do that. If God has blessed you with the resources to do that, God will not love you any less if you buy that car, if you buy that mansion, or if you spend your life devoted to researching ancient Greek sculpture. However, what Paul is trying to do is to get us to see that none of those things is satisfying. The culture we live in is constantly trying to teach us that satisfaction is bound up in experiences and objects. And the funny thing is, every year, they come out with a new model year, and the advertisements say, well, actually, no, this car now is the one that will make you happy. It's a never-ending cycle. And we all know, I mean, we all know, if someone were to ask us, does stuff make you happy, we would say no. And yet we are all tempted to think like that. The problem is not the sports car. The problem is a mindset that says satisfaction can be found in anything apart from Jesus Christ. Believe me, if a sports car and a million dollars in each of our bank's bank accounts is what it would take to make us happy, God would give it to us. He loves us. It says he will withhold nothing good from his children. Oftentimes, we don't actually believe that. We spend our lives pursuing material wealth and a comfortable life. But what God is telling us in this passage is that none of those things ultimately satisfy. There is nothing wrong with having wealth. Each one of us in this room is incredibly wealthy to a Christian living in poverty in Ethiopia. Okay? Each of us is incredibly wealthy when measured against the standard of everyone who has lived in previous centuries. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that God has given to us. Paul himself says, I know how to be happy when I am rich. I know how to be happy when I am poor. So what, and so what matters is that Paul's happiness, that Paul's pursuit was not tied up in the things, in his situation in life. He could gladly be wealthy. He could gladly be poor because he simply did not care. So the question the question we need to be asking ourselves is not, is this right or is this... We, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying that our morality is completely subjective or that you can just do whatever you want as long as you say, well, this is part of pursuing Christ. We do need to be pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness, pursuing a standard of living that reflects God's character. But Mormons think they're doing it. Mormons do that. Jehovah's Witnesses do that. What Christians need to be asking is, am I pursuing Christ? And again, not for some legalistic standard, for some legalistic reason. It is because your happiness is tied up in Jesus Christ. I think one of the reasons we fail to have this mindset in Christianity is because 
many of us have a gross misunderstanding of grace and Christian freedom. Too often our idea of grace and Christian freedom center around the ability to do as we please, to be comfortable where we are at, to be complacent. I can do this. I have freedom in Christ, or I don't have to worry about that. I believe in grace. Yet if you read Paul's teachings on grace and freedom, it's readily apparent that that's not his view of grace and freedom. If anyone has ever understood grace, it's the Apostle Paul. And yet, if anyone understood sacrifice and living a life that did not make demands, it was also the Apostle Paul. Scripture doesn't teach that grace and freedom are intended to allow us to simply do as we please. They're not a license for a complacent life. Grace and freedom are the liberty to pour ourselves out in service of God. Grace doesn't mean that every lifestyle is an equal and commendable lifestyle. It doesn't mean that a life spent self-centeredly pursuing wealth and comfort is an equal expression of God's love. It is a better thing to pour yourself out than to be pursuing comfort. But not for a legalistic reason, but because you find Christ in the mission field. You find Christ at 5 o'clock in the morning when your child is up early and you have to have a discipline moment with them. Christ is found in the gutters serving the homeless. Christ is to be found in giving of yourself. It doesn't mean that each of us is going to be called to be a Jim Elliot and be martyred on the mission field by cannibals. It doesn't mean that each person is called to be a pastor or a street evangelist. But what it does mean, what grace does mean, what Paul is saying is that each of us, each of our lives, whether you're a mother, whether you're a father, faithfully working to support your family, whether you're a young man, not knowing what you're going to be doing with your life, means wherever we are called for our own joy, we are to pursue Christ, not holding back. And I love this passage, this verse, verse 16, where Paul says, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. If you're sitting here thinking, well, I, I don't think I'm in a place where I can give up my car and, my, and go live in the bush, and again, that is not what God is calling you to do necessarily. Where you're at, your understanding of who Christ is. What way can you today, what things in your life, I suspect that most of us are thinking things in your life that you know they are, they are fine, they are not bad things, but you know these other pursuits, these other goals that you have are holding you back things that are perfectly legitimate and right things for Christians to do. But what I want to challenge you to do is look at your life now. What things can you be doing to continue pressing on, continue pressing on for the goal? For some of you, it might be getting off Facebook. 
For some of you, it might be selling your, your uh, pet project, your, that car you've had sitting in your garage. I don't know, and I'm not going to set up standards because that's, that's, that would just be legalistic. That would be me, me just telling you what to do and then you doing it because you thought it made you a better person. But what we really need to understand, what we really need to believe is that Jesus Christ is worth it, that being found in him is worth it. And this is not a big church. I, I, I'm, from, I'm from this area, and I've moved down to the States, and I see some, some of these churches I see down there, I say, wow, that is, sometimes I say that is really horrible, but other times I say the influence that these churches are able to have on their culture is amazing. And then you come to a place like this, and you say, there's a couple hundred of us. What can we do? I will tell you, the first churches started off of a couple hundred people. I would take a group of 100 people who is radically dedicated to serving Christ, to pursuing Christ together in this way, than a church of 16,000 people rather that is trying to live a life with one hand pursuing the American dream and the other hand trying to serve Christ. So we've covered a lot of ground in a very little time. We've seen how legalism sets a standard that is too low and keeps Christians from pursuing with all their might the call that God has on our lives. We've seen how legalism robs Christians of their confidence and enjoying keeps them from enjoying the freedom that they have from resting in Christ's righteousness. We've seen how Christ is both the ends and the means of the gospel. And finally, we've seen the life God would have us live in light of what he has done and the high calling each of us should pursue. We are no longer called to have our eyes turned to earthly things, but to our citizenship, which is in heaven. And I just want to finish reading the passage, starting in verse 20. So our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Now this this message can have two impacts and it depends on who you are. If you're hearing this and you've not yet confessed of your sins, repented of them and put your faith in Christ's righteousness, there's no better time to do it than today. There aren't any magic words. There aren't any magic formulas. Just tell God, however you can express it, that you agree with him. His, his standard of righteousness is right. That you trust Christ to stand in your place before his throne. And God promises that salvation comes to all that will ask without exception. But know that if you refuse Christ's offer of salvation, you need to realize what this means. It means that you are trusting your own righteousness to carry you on the day of judgment. That when you stand before the almighty God, the creator of the universe, you will hold up your measly righteousness and hope 
that it will be good enough, and it won't be. If you have the happy experience of being free from the weight of sin through the righteousness of Christ, then what you need to take from this passage is the joy of living as a redeemed person, the joy of living as a citizen of heaven, the joy of being free from the pursuit, these pursuits that bring no satisfaction and no joy. Christ has freed you from sin, and he calls you to the most amazing, wonderful, satisfying experience, the experience that God created us for and the only experience that will ultimately satisfy the longing in each of our hearts. And that is the experience of living a life that is free from all earthly concerns and living a heaven-directed life pursuing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that each of us could do better. We thank you that that doesn't matter. We thank you that Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness cannot be improved upon. Lord, I pray that for each person in this room that you would make Christ beautiful, that the pursuit of him would become our goal, that we would truly understand that our joy is tied up in your Son. We pray that we might live a life this week that would reflect that, that would show the love of Christ to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family members, and that even through our testimony that you might save some. We pray these things and we ask them all in Jesus' name. Amen.